Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds on May 31st and June 1st hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Hey, you're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Just a note that this next conversation is really fun. It's informative. It also contains a couple words that some sensitive ears might find objectionable. So keep that in mind if you've got little ones in the car. You're listening to Soundside. I'm KUOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Comedian Roy Wood Jr. has had a heck of a year. He hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April. My favorite voting machine is... Dominion voting machines. When I go to the polls, I make sure it is a Dominion machine that I use. If your election needs the truth, put Dominion in your booth. He started a nationwide tour. The job I ever had was Golden Corral, the dopest buffet spot if you're not And after South eight years with The Daily Show on Comedy Central, he announced he was leaving the show in October. In an interview with Esquire magazine, Roy said that he's ready to explore new territory in his comedy. Now, he's bringing that exploration to Seattle. He's performing at the Moore Theater on Sunday, December 31st, and he joins me here now. Roy, thank you so much for joining Soundside. How the heck are you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. I'm doing better now. Okay. Yes, yes, and look, you're coming to Seattle for a New Year's Eve performance, so you already know people is going to be dressed up. They're going out. It's a big night. But I'm curious, what do you think makes for a good New Year's Eve comedy show? Do you got to set the mood for the holiday crowd? I think you have to have high energy because New Year's Eve is about optimism. New Year's Eve is about looking back on everything that you did or did not accomplish and lying to yourself that next year is going to be your year. So I am not the one to come on stage with negativity. I'm here to help you through that. Now, Roy, your your show is at eight o'clock. So I'm guessing you're going to be done before midnight. You got plans? You're, yeah. you're bringing in the new year here in Seattle with us. What's your plan? Um, you know, I don't know. This is also my first time performing in Seattle proper. Let me also add that as well, because when I used to play Seattle like four or five years ago, I was at the club that used to be out in Bellevue at the mall there. I don't know the name of the what, mall. Was it the parlor? It was, yeah, Parlor Live. I used to play Parlor Live, and it was a nightclub right outside the club. Like, because that was like one of the last comedy clubs in America where, what are you doing after the show? Uh, staying here. There's yes. a bowling alley and a movie theater and a Dave and Buster's and like there's, there's a dance floor. Everything I want to possibly do is in this building. Whereas now um, I actually be, you know, in Seattle properly. So I got to do a little bit of research and homework. Cause you know, Pacific Northwest, your neighborhoods change very fast. You cross one bridge, it's a whole different vibe. You go over that bridge, it's a whole nother vibe. You get lost two times, two wrong turns, and now you're in Tacoma, and that's a whole that's a nother whole, vibe. That's a whole thing. Yes, yeah, but you're so going to be downtown, gotta, you know? Space Needle, fireworks, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be cool. 
I got to do my homework. I also heard people just now starting to come back and do stuff in downtown Seattle. What y'all have done to downtown? Did y'all, I am legend it for a while, but just people you, didn't hang there? It, it happened. It happened. But as you can see, it's coming back. We got you okay. coming downtown. That that signifies in 2024, we're, we're coming back downtown. Love Comedy it. helps. Love it. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be back in the building. You know, the thing that I do want to do, like just if we're talking about New Year's, you do want to talk about the year that was a little bit of reflecting, if you can, and then start talking a little bit about what's to come in 2024. And I got to figure out how to do that without making people bleak, because uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the footage. A lot of chaos in the world these days on multiple fronts. So... You know, I'll figure out a way to dabble in that a little bit. It's weird. Since I left The Daily Show, I really don't get into politics nearly as deeply as I used to uh, within my standup. Like it was almost a realization how much being constantly informed for my job just made me inherently informed for standup. And so I was able to just my like the content ponds that you fish from are essentially who you are in totality as a performer. So because I'm no longer on The Daily Show, I'm not watching cable news on a constant IV drip. I watch cable news. I went from watching probably two hours of cable news a day to maybe an hour a week. But but the change is I now watch the local news every day, which is what I used to do before I was on The Daily Show. Like, I enjoy local news. I enjoy local newspapers. I mean, digitally now for the most part. But so my point is the comedy and what I want to bring to Seattle on New Year's Eve, it's a little bit more of a totality of who we are as a society versus 60 minutes on gun control and abortion and George Santos. (laughs) Which George Santos never ending content. But I'm curious because you mentioned that. How has that shift been for you? Because, you know, doing the Daily Show and speaking on politics, especially from the perspective that you brought, that kind of set you apart, especially in our community, from different comedians. Like, it felt like you took on a whole different layer of responsibility of being somebody that could really help us understand the complexity of politics but also laugh at things that should probably scare us. I, it's, it's the job of correspondent definitely is a calling you have to answer with respect to the military, of course. But this idea that, oh, this joke means a lot more to the person consuming it than the creator is something you just have to be resigned to. I don't think any comedian sets out to write the joke that will be the joke that will change all minds. But if I can contribute in a way that helps to make this easier to understand or digest or to suffer through, then I've done that. That's that's a great, but did you laugh? Yes or no. Cool. Now on top of that, anything else that happens, you know, that's kind of a cherry on top, but you know, I've never written material with the ideology that, this will finally end racism. When white people hear this joke, oh, they gonna really understand. <laughs> and things are gonna start changing around here. And I start rubbing my hands like a, like what's what's the dude Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons. So yeah, it's 
it's interesting in that you look back in reflection on the job and to watch the daily show now as a consumer after being inside the machine for eight years I'm now the one watching and hoping, okay, well, let me see how they tackle this story because I'm sure there's something about this that I don't know that I would love to be educated on. And like that thing is, mm, it's always something I've appreciated, but it's not something that I've ever wanted to overstate or wear on my sleeve. This idea that that I'm, I, set out, I set out every day to write the golden joke. I get because that. Because I didn't. But I am going to ask you, a, a really selfish question because I understand why you left the daily show. All of that makes sense. And, and you're shifting, like you're talking about fatherhood, all that makes sense. But, but Roy, you, you left the daily show right before the 2024 election. <laughs> this might be the most interesting election hey, that we ever had. Who hey, better than you to be the I, one? <laughs> I really? gave y'all two elections. <laughs> I gave you Trump. I gave you Biden. <laughs> this one right <laughs> I'm here. I'm out the door. I'm out the door, man. I, what I got to figure out, though, because here's the thing. I I haven't left the space of figuring out a way to make frustrating things funny. I just never continued to feel like if I'm not in a host capacity at The Daily Show, I wanted the time and space to explore what it could look like somewhere else to quarterback my own situation. That's really what it boils down to. Like you're on a team long enough. You know, you probably won't be the starting quarterback. You can't say for sure, but your window of free agency is now not January. You need to know now from October to December, what next year is going to be, because what I didn't want to be is come January to your point about the election. Look up in Jane. Let's say the Daily Show could announce a new host tomorrow. And the day after that, that host, if they wanted to, this is far-fetched. But I'm just explaining to you how my mind works and the paranoia, right? The Daily Show could have a new host. And the next day, that new host could tell all the correspondents to kiss his ass and get up out of it. Or her ass and get up out of it. So now it's January and I have no job. And now I'm a free agent. But at this point... Every show already has their quarterback. Every network at that point is already have thought about what 2024 is going to be. Those conversations are happening right now. So I have to be a part of those conversations. And it, and you cannot do that and do the job of correspondent correctly and justly. So it's like I, I get it now. It's the same reason why. You get fired from a job when they find out you Googling other jobs on the company computer. Because they feel like you ain't fully present and you can't be fully present. I can't. Hey, Roy, can you go cover the, the atrocity today and get jokes and levity? And then I have to lie and say I can't go when I know deep down I got a meeting over here with two other networks because I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do in case y'all don't keep me in January. And if I'm not done. I didn't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. Get out the way. Make space for the new kids. They, they've scooped up two new correspondents. Um, I hear rumors there's there's one more on the way. Like like so, they are. It is a machine, and it will continue to work and run fine without me. I just I 
I need this time to figure out where I'm going to be in 24. I don't need to be figuring that out in 24. So if it's hosting the Daily Show, cool. If it's not, then I was wise to leave three months early. And I'm sorry if that means we get Trump again. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask then, since, you know, and all that makes sense and and you're making this shift. And one of the topics that that we're hearing you talk about is fatherhood. And your father was a journalist with WVON in Chicago. How has his legacy shaped how you approach your career and now that you're making this this shift, you know, what does that say about you as a father? Oh, that's a very good question. You know, my father definitely was was influential, but not in the beginning. It's a, more of an in hindsight influence. The habit of watching the local news every day is a habit I picked up from my dad. My dad did that every night. He was a news journalist, just for the record, for the people who don't know anything about him. So, you know, he went and physically covered conflicts and got sound bites in the middle of African civil wars in Vietnam and any civil rights, any American riot. Literally from the 50s until Rodney King, my father was there with a tape recorder. So, you know, like that level of truth seeking that's probably genetics. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of what that means for my son, what I'm trying to do now with my son is to allow him just to see what I do and understand it. But I don't push him towards it. I don't do anything to encourage or force him to gravitate into this space. Um, but I do understand, you know, the importance of being present as a father and Knowing what I know now about my dad, the man had a very difficult juggling act because you have it is the constant fatherhood parenting as a whole. I don't even want to disrespect mothers. Parenting is literally choosing when to provide and when to be present. And you don't know if you put too much seasoning on one versus the other. Like parenting is it's a screwed up job because at its best, you don't even know whether or not you did it right until the kid is like 25. Now, at its worst, you'll know much sooner. But the idea of even understanding whether or not, well, was that the right thing? What's the ratio of hugs to, 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 to discipline What's the, versus what I got? And, you know, you're, you're, you're having to, you know, our generation, I'm 45. I feel like we're that first wave of black people where we're having to assess how we were raised and decide how much of that to in, to put into our own parenting strategies, you know, i.e. whoopings or yelling or psychological punishment, you know, things like that. Chivalry. Should I be raising him to be chivalrous in a world where feminism and let the woman be a woman is happening? Well, where's the line between being chivalrous, but also empowering a woman and not making her offended? Like, I have to teach him new things that are also that aren't yet congealed. It's like you're teaching your kids a a behavior recipe for a cake that's still in the oven. 
I don't even know if this cake is going to come out right. We might have overcorrected behaviorally as a society with wokeism, but we won't. We don't know. We won't know. We won't know <laughs> until the kids are twenty five. And so, yes. so it's it's that constant balance of just always wondering if you're making the right choice and you don't have any proof that you are yet. And it feels like the world itself is is changing rapidly I, I saw a clip on twitter or x uh where yeah. i heard you say a joke only works if everyone agrees on the premise and oh that, yeah the mike birbiglia quote yeah and that yeah, seems difficult right now like is it is it hard to make jokes where everyone does agree on the premise these days i think it's it's harder it's not impossible you know, I think comedy to a degree has become very siloed, much like politics and political opinion. So if you have a comedian you like, you're probably going to like most everything he says. If you don't agree with something he says, you don't care about any of the jokes. There wasn't a concept of a liberal comedian or conservative comedian. I saw that on Twitter one time. Where like Popular conservative comedian so-and-so. The idea that the occupation of comedy of stand-up, the occupation of stand-up comic can now be labeled as Dem or Republican, that just feels odd to me because comedians is just supposed to be chaos agents and we're and you're supposed to respect our perspective enough to let us get to the punchline. But now people won't let you get to the punchline. They'll arm fold and stare at you. You know, I have a bit where I talk about going to it's it's a the joke is about customer service, but I saw bad customer service and it can happen anywhere. And I saw bad customer service happen in a gun store. And the entire joke is about a man wanting to buy a gun and the employee being rude to him. I'm like, you're literally about to give him a gun. You should be nice. Like be so from the first in the setup of that joke where I literally just say the words I was in a gun store. I can feel people shift sometimes because the the, the underlying subliminal ponderance from the audience, I assume I cannot prove this. I do not poll my audience, but I feel like the underlying split second in a gun store takes them out. If you're if you're hugely anti-guns, I got you on edge now because now you're wondering why was I in the gun store? What are you doing in the gun store? Do you believe in guns? Are you one of them? And I just plow through it. And I used to give that joke with it's a longer bit, but I used to give like the setup in the beginning about all right, I was in the gun store with my uncle. He likes to shoot guns. So I go with him sometimes to shoot guns. And then I would add in that long preamble. And oh, I was in the gun store. I saw bad customer service one time. I was in the gun store. My uncle, he's ex-military. So he goes to buy a gun. I don't own a gun, but I go shoot him with my uncle. And it just, it just felt like unnecessary preamble pandering to put people's political opinions at ease before I deviate back into the joke. That whole run about my uncle ex-military and me not owning it's all true, 
but I'm only saying that because I'm trying to get you to remain engaged with this bit that has nothing to do with your political opinions. But the word gun store is a buzz. That's a taser word. It hits certain people like a cattle prod. So the idea of constantly trying to calm down the audience so that you can know that I ain't got time for that. This joke about a gun store. I'm sorry if the word got you on edge. But anyway, this man was in a gun store and the cashier wouldn't look at him. Joke, joke, joke. That's what I'm on now. It also makes the joke quicker and streamlined. And it's probably better if you wonder my opinions. Because the flip of that is if you're pro-gun and I see I was in a gun store. Now you're going, oh, wow, I didn't know he was. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's my guy. I like Roy Wood. Now he goes to the gun. He goes to the gun range. So, you know, I just think this idea of people getting mad at a premise. It just it proves to me that you brought the one thing that you're never supposed to bring with you to a comedy show, which is preconceived notions and biases. You're supposed to leave all of that at the door. It it used to seem as as a as a society we understood the comedian's job was to make us laugh. If we laugh, mission complete. It, it feels like in everything that you're saying that that now we're we're bringing all of this baggage with us in, into the comedy club. And I'm curious, do you feel like the job of being a comedian has gotten harder now? That's a tough one to answer. I feel like audiences are tougher. But our jokes and our process remain the same. I have to change up a little bit of sentences to avoid emotional tripwires that are in people's subconscious. So I think when you ask whether or not the job of comedian is harder, that depends on how much of a give a damn you possess in touching people's tripwires or stepping on a landmine. You know, I don't really care about it, but I'm also not a really combative comedian. I'm not a comic where there's going to be a bunch of videos up on the Internet of somebody arguing with me in the crowd about my ideology. You know, I don't necessarily have that, but I'm begging you money comics that are a little bit more on the nose politically on the regular they're probably dealing with it a little bit more and it's probably exhausting. It's man, it'll wear your ass out dealing with a super sensitive audience. You know, that 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 happens. You know, there's a there's a young comic that I don't want to say up and coming. He's been doing his thing for a while, but I just think he's really getting into the crosshairs of the mainstream more so deserve it deservedly now. Uh this young comic named Nimesh Patel. And Numesh had a, he did a joke. I don't remember what the joke was, but he was at the University of Columbia and they cut his microphone. They cut his microphone. The students cut his microphone off because we don't agree with the premise or the punchline of that joke. And those aren't the kind of jokes we want here. The kind of Well, then that means you only want jokes that appeal, that appeal to your ideology or whatever. So that censorship which defeats the whole purpose of college, in my opinion. But I guess you got the right to not want that on your campus. I say all of that to say full circle, he's performing 
at the University of Columbia again, at, at Columbia University again, I think in a couple of weeks or so. And I think they both had some growing to do, maybe, is you he, know, as a people. Is he going to redo that joke? I hope he does. I hope he opens with it. I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. I do hope he brings his own microphone, though. <laughs> he should he, he really definitely should. rent a PA system from from Guitar Center. <laughs> and, and do his thing. Exactly. Try to cut this one off. He need to set up his PA on the stage like a street performer <laughs> in Times Square. Everything that, that you just said in this part of the conversation, I think, lends itself to this this idea that we're in right now where I keep hearing people say that comedy doesn't age well, which is interesting. I think it's it's us who is changing and not the comedy. But it feels like for you, your career is gaining steam. How has that worked for you? How have you managed this this longevity? I f- it feels like you're, you're still growing and growing and growing. Yeah. You just mentioned your age, but you're still out here. We're still thirsty for it. How have you managed to do that? I started when I was 19, bro. And, you know, to be able to have done this job for this long is a blessing. I've been doing comedy longer than I have not been doing it. Which is kind of wild to to think about when I think about my life. But, you know, I've tried to just tell honest stories about what's happening in the world around us. I think part of why comedy doesn't age well is because it's not supposed to. Comedy is a reflection of the times we were in in that particular moment. You know, so a joke from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's not supposed to be funny today. Yeah, it aged terribly because you were using a bunch of words that at that time in society were far more mainstream and wouldn't get you in nearly as much trouble. But to go back through someone's back catalog and make assumptions on what their beliefs were because they used that word, we're judging yesterday's actions on today's morals. And I don't think you can do that justly like that's. And I'm talking strictly jokes here. I'm not talking about like crime, right? Criminalistic, you know, statute of limitations type stuff. I'm talking strictly just about if you did a joke about a disabled person, then was it wrong and insensitive then? And did it make somebody feel some kind of way back in 1985? Absolutely. Most likely so. But to assume the same level of malice and intent from the performer as you would someone now who knows what this joke will do f- to certain peoples, to the people of the community that joke is about. Those are two totally different comedians operating from two totally different places of intention. And I think that part of it, any good comic will be able to navigate the standards that society sets. If you can't, you're just, you're not trying. And that's either because you don't want to or because you're lazy. But any comedian that wanted to navigate the expectations of society, um, they could do that. I got suspended when I did morning radio. Um, I got suspended a lot. Let's just start there. I was the comedian on the show. I had prank phone calls. And about once a month, I would get suspended for either something I said to somebody in a prank or behavioral stuff in this like insubordination or whatever right and I remember about a year or two into my time at the station 
the Janet Jackson nipple slip, um, nipple gate, as they call it now for the young people. Um, Justin Timberlake did the halftime show with Janet Jackson. Yes. He was supposed to pull the front part of some trick outfit off of her chest, revealing a pasty. He pulled too hard. The pasty ripped with the outfit. And we got sneak preview of Janet Jackson's bare nipple. Young Mike Davis remembers. 60 million people. No, probably 90 million back in that day. My point is that incident changed broadcasting in America. And so the uh, Cox Radio, where I was at the time, they had a 20-page memo from the FCC which defined obscenity, profanity, vulgarity, every form of indecency over broadcast. This is when they started implementing the penalty of $100,000 fines per curse word that slips out on the air. And that's what I used to get in trouble for with the prank phone calls is that I wouldn't bleep the curse words. Oh, I, I just forget. Sometimes I would accidentally play the dirty file instead of the clean file. My fault for putting them on the same CD took me time to learn that that's how you don't make that mistake. But my point is, is that what, what my program director pointed out to me uh, was the FCC's definition of indecency. And indecency is defined by the community at large that is consuming the content, which is why what could get me suspended in Birmingham, Alabama, would get me a promotion on New York City radio. In those days, when we're talking about the types of skits and like, you know, people forget, man, morning radio, especially black morning radio, morning radio was the Wild West. That Aaliyah died, and the next morning, there was a morning show playing, quote unquote, in flight audio from the plane going down. So, Jokes can cross lines. They didn't get suspended. They got called out for it by the media, but they didn't get suspended. But if you'd have done that in a small town or if I made the wrong religious joke, you could get suspended. So indecency is not a concrete thing when we talk about spoken word. Indecency is about what people deem indecent, what people choose to be offended by. The issue as a comedian is that the line for offense keeps moving. And it's not the same for all comedians, too. It's a bunch of double standards. If we want to talk about comics that get them under fire versus the ones who don't. So your job as a comedian, I think, is to still navigate that. So is it 1998, like when I started, where you could just say whatever? No. But if I sit a little longer and work harder at crafting the joke, I take pride in being able to talk about edgy stuff without hitting people's tripwires. Because if I hit your tripwire, for me, if I hit your tripwire, now you're no longer paying attention to all of this wonderful material I crafted. And I don't feel like going to war with you. There are other comedians that love a battle. They come on stage and deliberately, Dave Chappelle was hitting people's tripwires for three specials in a row. <laughs> And they're going, Dave, you can't say that. What? The same thing I'm about to say again? Like, so it's it's just about, you know, comedies like martial arts. Everybody has a different technique. Now we're, we're, we're coming up on time, but I, I can't let you go without asking you about the, the White House Correspondents Dinner. And I'm, I'm so curious. I've had comedians tell me that 
these are gigs. You get a gig, you get another one. But I'm curious for you, was this was it a pinnacle? Was it a significant moment or was it just a, a, another another stage that you had to go crush? You treat it like another stage because it is that it's not until after you're done where you go. Because <laughs> otherwise you're getting your head too much about it and then you might fumble it and not, you know, do the gig properly. Um, it is by far, in my opinion, one of the most difficult tasks in entertainment. And it's even harder now because the news keeps changing and the news changes have we're on a half day news cycle now we used to talk about 40 like a good scandal back in the day man you could ride that scandal for four or five days in the media that's all they were talking about now it's 12 other things happening so it's hard to write a comedy set for a room of that specificity journalists and politicians and only do jokes about the things they care about and know about, but also the joke kind of needs to connect with the regular voting constituents that will also be watching. But you also need to have an opinion and an angle. So consider, oh, by the way, five new current events just happened since that last script you wrote. So those jokes that you have there, those jokes aren't really relevant anymore because they're not even top of news cycle. We were writing up until the day of, bro. No, that was it was and it was amazing. We have a we have a clip that I just want to play from from a moment. Yeah. Uh, this joke landed very very interestingly. Can you can you hit the clip? Can can we stop with the grooming stuff? Can you stop talking about that? Drag queens are not at a school to groom your kids. Stop it. And even if they were, most of them kids going to get shot at school. It ain't no problem. Don't grown pass legislation. That was a very interesting moment. Uh, uh, when they went from laughing to not laughing, and then you came back and hit them at it, it was just it was just beautiful. How does it feel to use that moment to hit that room full of politicians with a joke like that? I, you know, it's it's the one opportunity that a constituent gets an opportunity to face the elected officials and tell and give them a live Yelp review. That's really what the correspondence dinner is. It's a, it's an employee evaluation meet, meeting. See, Roy, that's 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 why we want you to be around for this 20, 2024 <laughs> election because we need somebody that's going to go and do that. But Roy, thank you so much for joining me. Roy Wood Jr. is performing at the Moore Theater here in Seattle on Sunday, December thirty first. Roy, what are you excited about coming to Seattle? Uh, sushi. Ooh. That's that's really it. Are shrooms legal up there yet? Not, not. Okay. I mean, you know, legal, legal, legal gets a little wonky. Uh, officially, okay, I have to say mind. no. Never mind then. <laughs> sushi, sushi. We 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 got that for you. <laughs> got to make a trip to Portland. Exactly. <laughs> it ain't that far. <laughs> Roy, thank you so much for joining us on Southside. Absolutely. Roy Wood Jr. is performing at the Moore Theater here in Seattle on New Year's Eve. 
I'm Mike Davis. You're listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m., Monday through Thursday, or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.